0: see it, except for any uh, microphones from up there, if you guys to bring them down. For me. <coughs> this morning, we're going to do a longer section from the Book of Numbers. Chris, uh, if you're a reader, you can come up now. Given the section that Chris has, at least at the start, you're going to wonder what she did to offend me this week. <laughs> uh, lots of odd names. Um, let's see. Why don't you guys share as families? Or if you'd rather not share his families, then uh, switch spots. Um, Yes. But uh, one of my favorite parts about church is it's one of the few spots in society where we read out loud to each other still, unless you're in school, generally you don't read out loud and listen to it anymore. So this is a chance just for you to to get comfortable and encourage you not to necessarily follow along in your Bible right now, but just to hear the word read, um, to hear the story told and have that sort of... Uh, bring you into its world and tell you what's going on. So thank you, readers, for being up here.
1: The Lord said to Moses,
2: Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of those leaders.
1: So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Haran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites, and these are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shammuah, son of Zakar. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar. Baikal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Balti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Zodi, From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph. Gadi, son of yeah, Susi, yeah. from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher. Yeah. Sethur, son of Michael, from the tribe yeah, of Naphtali, yeah. Nabai, son of Volti, from the tribe of Gad, Yenuel, yeah. son of Machai, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Yeah. Moses, gave Hosea, son of Nath, the name of yeah.
3: When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled with or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes.
1: So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Sin as far as Rohab, toward Nebo, Hamah. Then they went up to the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahmineth and Shishay and Tamani and the descendants of lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And when they reached the Valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron, and the whole community, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh, in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account:
2: We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan.
1: Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go
3: up and take possession of the land, we can certainly do it.
1: But the men who had gone up
3: with him said, We can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are.
1: And they spread among the Israelites a bad report, that the left about the land they had explored. They said,
3: the land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the ne- Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them.
1: <coughs> that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron And the whole assembly said to them,
0: If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken and plundered. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt.
1: Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community,
3: The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us." Only well, we do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people in the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, and the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But
1: the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses,
2: How long will these people should me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have performed among them. I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they.
1: Moses said to the Lord,
3: Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all of these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard my report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have been declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now
1: the Lord replied
2: I have forgiven them as you asked nevertheless as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me (coughs) wholly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea.
1: The Lord said to Moses and Aaron,
2: How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you twenty years old or more was was counted in the census, and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb son of Jephunneh, and Joseph son of Nun, Joshua son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering your unfaithfulness until the last of it. Your bodies lies in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which it has banded together against me, They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die.
1: So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men, who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the book of
0: no, Now we are ready to up, go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned.
1: But Moses
3: said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there, because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you, and will, in with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless,
1: in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hona.
0: Thank you readers for doing that. The kids are invited to kids church. why I had to sort of read and sit with the whole passage is because none of it's really complete without any of the parts. If you were to really slow down and just sit with one segment of it or one part of it, you would be missing some huge pieces that come later to just sort of fill out the story. And If you remember back to a couple of summers ago, we um, we were going through Exodus and we had Exodus 32, 33, and 34, the golden calf scene. And similar to that in the sense of that if you were to take the golden casting and just sit with 32 you would end up with in a, in a weird place and 33 you would, you would kind of be moving and 34 resolves the story in some way and so sometimes you you have to see the bigger picture to really see what's going on you can't just sort of take it in one segment or in one small space and so i think it's important sometimes that we read those larger sort of stories so that we can hear them and begin to sort of work. Now, I could have maybe cut the names for Chris, but I didn't want to. Um, Actually, the reason why the names part is important is because it's a different set of names than it was when they did the first census. The leaders of the tribes were supposed to count each of the people, and they called forth a different set of names here, and it's probably because the leaders of the tribes were old. And when you send spies out to explore the land, you go young. don't go as old. Uh, and so if you're keeping track at home, which most of us sort of, our eyes glaze over when we get to the, those names and those lists, but if you're keeping track at home, it's a different set of people, and that says something about what's going on in the story. This is the um, the, the uh, fourth rebellion sort of in the wilderness if you look at this graph, or whatever you would call this chart. Um, you have A, and if they sort of film a, uh, form a, a they would call a chiastic structure to some degree is that you know the first complaint has to do with misfortunes the second has to do with misfortunes moses intercedes um the fur b and b if you look up there have to do with food and water and these have intercessions although um lacks faith for moses and aaron in this one and it mirrors the lacking faith actually in the food one and then the one that we skipped from last week um was the leadership one where Aaron and Miriam sort of um, lead their own revolt against Moses, and that that's a crisis of leadership which is similar to the crisis of leadership that comes immediately after this story that we'll explore next week. And then the one that sort of makes up the peak of, of these sort of rebellions is D, and that's why it sits alone. It doesn't have a mirror to it. It's just sort of its own thing. Is this one that comes at the promised land, that gets them delayed for forty years, in which they will sort of spend this time wandering in the desert, but they won't be able to go and fulfill the land. And So that's how sort of the structure of these works, and we'll we'll explore, um, I think, all of them going forward. Um, we'll we'll hit on all of the the next rebellions. Well, one of the things I want to return to, and I know you're probably getting sick of seeing this graph, is is that this 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 captures for two things that we're trying to sort of do in the sermon series, two two sort of things I'm trying to work out, which is the first is that this is the story of the people of God being called from the wilderness into the promised land. And this story is true in an objective sense, and it's a story that we're meant to walk with and to see in the ways in which God's mighty action has been performed for the people of Israel. And by being performed by the people for the people of Israel, it is performed for the church, and that is a story for us to see also um, become more and more apparent to me as we've done these this Torah series, this is the fourth one, how much Jesus' own life is sort of ingrained with these stories itself. Last Sunday, uh, Moses calls together 70 elders, and then in the book of Luke, Jesus sends 70 disciples out. And they go and they cast out demons. And then Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Each one of these has this sort of way of connecting to Jesus' story. And Jesus' story, his own narrative is sort of lived through the lens of Torah, but in a different way. And so that's, that's, that's one level of it. It's, this, it's the story of the people of God. But there's this older level, which I tried to make a little bit more clear last week, which is this early church level on which this is, is sort of therapy for your souls. But as people born of Adam, people born in sin, you are an Exodus generation who has crossed through the. You um you you have this pattern of looking backwards. You have this pattern of not taking hope. You have this pattern of sin and denial and lack of trust in God. This is true in an individual sense, is what they would say. And yet, what this story is is about how you live as this promised land generation as well. That your your, your soul and your body has been engrafted into Christ in the way that you live as the people who are going to go forward and inherit the promised land, or in New Testament language, the kingdom of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, that this is our story as well. And so we exist on this timeline as well. And so what life is perhaps, this is one analogy for us, is this wilderness time in which I am both this old Adam this old self, continually pulled backwards in the patterns of sin and death and destruction, in which I am also this new person placed on this new timeline in Christ, brought into new life. So these are the two things I'm trying to hold in in this sermon, in this series and in this sermon. Um, and so it won't maybe always be obvious when I'm switching from one to the other, um, but keep that in mind, is, that, is that, that we talk about this in an objective sense of what God has done for these particular people at this particular time in the wilderness in sometime BC, um, And what it means for us as individuals today to see ourselves as inheritors, but also as people who drag themselves backwards. But what I want to do is sort of go through the story in five acts, in five different pictures. So the first act is, assuming I did this right, that's 40, Um Never double-check these slides, I'm surprised there are more typos, because you guys normally are hesitant to call me out on mistakes, um, so I'm guessing I'm doing okay uh, with them. Um, but the first act is this 40, is that these spies are called out by God and Moses to go out and to explore the land, to go out and see if the land is good, and they spend 40 days and 40 or 40 days they spend this amount of time exploring the land. Now there's this, this idea of the people of Israel have been formed into sort of this military encampment, right, and so they sort of go as spies to sort of see, can we win this land? But look at the questions, if you have your Bible, and if you don't, you look at the questions that, that they're actually asked to go and look at. Um, he sends them out, he says, go up through the Negev for the hill country, see what the land is like. Whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. So that's your first question of sort of military. But then the next several questions what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they walled or fortified? Military again. How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. There's this question of is this land good? Is this land nurtured? Is this land going to, as, as God has promised, flow with milk and honey for us? Is this land going to be that type of place? <clears throat> now, there's an interesting tension here on, on who calls forth this mission to go to the spies, because the Hebrew word that says that God did this is kind of ambiguous. It's more along the lines of, if this: if this is what you guys need, go and look at the land so that you can be prepared for the goodness I have for. This is sort of an allowance. And so Moses does this, maybe perhaps for the people, and is less ordered to do it by God, but is more doing it because this is sort of what they need. And so these people go off, and they spend 40 days and 40 nights there. And they come back with this uh, uh, huge thing of grapes, apparently, that two men have to carry it, with pomegranates and um, figs. Is that the other one? They come back with these things, and they bring them to the people, and the land is good. Now, now one of the themes that has been running through the book of Numbers is good and bad. Moses speaks good things. The people speak bad. Um, This is one of these things. And so is the land good or bad? Is the life that God has for us good or bad? Are we being drawn out by God to goodness or badness? Is this the way that the world flows? And so they come back with this massive amount of grapes that two people have to carry and pomegranates, and they put these before the people. The land is good. And here, for us, it's this this being called back as sort of living witnesses. Um, As people who have seen the goodness that God has for us, it's for us to be witnesses to the goodness that God has, to bring back some of the goodness. This is is the soul part of it to some degree, is how are we, these people who have been in the world, but have been shown something by being relocated in Christ, that we stand as witnesses to the goodness that God has. This is the challenge for us in this part, to sort of go out here and report back the good news of what God has done. But only two, act two, only two of them decide to do that. There are 10 others who come back as sort of negative witnesses to what God has done. Now what's interesting about this is that these, these ones come back and they say that the land is good, but then they pause And they say, however, um, but the people who live there are powerful, and their cities are fortified and very large. We saw the descendants of, and then you have these these names of the people who live there. One of them, interestingly enough, is the tribe that Goliath comes from. Uh, If you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath. One of them is the tribe of where this monstrous people sort of live. Uh, And this is what they come and they report back. Now, one of the interesting things about this, and I asked Hampton before the service, the word translated, but, in that sentence, or however, depending on what your English translation, is almost like nothing, this is a more literal translation. Nothing. It's like it's not going to happen. Like, yes, the land is good, but no. No way. Even in that word, it's contained that we are not going to go forward. So ten of them come back as witnesses to the to sort of the false news. They don't report good news back from seeing the promises that God has for them. But they come back and they report bad news. Now Caleb stands up at this moment and he says, we can take this land. We can surely go forward. We should go and take the possession of the land because we can do it, he says. And this is one of the the tensions, I think, in our own lives as we live on that timeline is there is the we can part of us and there is the we can't part. When Roosevelt Emily taught them the song, which you keep trying to get her to do it because it's such a great story for what the people in the book of Numbers are are trying to struggle with. And forgive me for singing and for hand motions and everything that comes with this. But but the song that Emily taught them, that Rosie does at home a lot, is that my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, which is a must be a new hand slogan. And uh, there is nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big. My God is so strong. My God is so mighty. There is nothing my God cannot do. It's a good slogan for our own lives as we live in this tension of we can do this. We can because God is with us. We can because this is the promise God has bestowed for us. We can move forward into this. And in the same way, to confront that we can't. Now, I don't know about your life, but the ratio might be around the same, which I should have broken out to percentage in my head before I stood up here. I'm not even going to try. It would be a long pause. Um, what was it? Now, Merle Gaston, Lisa said no. So, um, so we won't do the percentage. But this is this idea that we can move forward. We can go to this place. We can do this, is what he speaks up for. And this is a this is partially what comes of this. Is St. Thomas Aquinas said sloth is the negligence of a man who declines to acquire spiritual goods on the account of the attendant labor. Is what the we can't part is, is that we can't do this because there's labor involved in acquiring these goods. It's one of the things I think worth naming for us in the modern world. Aquinas, if you're not familiar with, is one of the ones who sort of really grapples with the idea of the seven deadly sins. Um, which we don't need to talk about, but when he talks about sloth, he's talking about something big. He's talking about this, is this negligence that says there's something good for me here. God has bestowed something good in the space, whether it's uprooting some sin from your life, whether it's moving forward into a promise that God has made to you, whether it's seeing the goodness of God in the land, regardless of what it is, it's sloth is the ability to say, I'm not going to do that because there's some labor involved in it. And this is at times what the we can't part of us struggles with. I don't want to move forward on account of that, it might require some work of me. It might require some challenges. And so they then exaggerate their concerns. They make their concerns even larger. They say that the, the Nephilim lived there. This is not in the initial report. But after Caleb gives this report, the ten others intend to win the fight in the camp. They spread rumors and and sort of exaggerate the world that they're gonna walk into, and there's no evidence that this is the case, so that the people don't want to go there, So they don't come back as living witnesses. They come back and tell the truth about what they saw in their own eyes. But then they come back, and they also exaggerate the concerns so that they don't have to go into the situation of risk. This brings us to Act Three. that's dissonance. That's noise in the camp. They stay up all night, and they cry, and they wail. Now, they've dreamed about going back to Egypt, or I don't know if dream is the right word. They've they've said, perhaps we should have stayed in Egypt, and this is where it reaches its peak, because they go, we're going back. Let's appoint a new leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's do this. They're taking it under their own now to say that this is our reality. This is where we should go. It would be better if we died out here in the wilderness. It'd be better to die in any other place than by this sword. And this is one of my favorite things, the concern they use. Somebody please think of the children. If you're not familiar with the scene in The Simpsons. It's very funny. Um, But that's part of what they say is, won't somebody think of the little ones? The little ones, what's going to happen to the little ones if we go forward with this? Um, And it tells you what they're grasping at all the reasons not to go forward. It's not just like, that sounds pretty bad, let's not do it. But they're grasping at all the reasons, and they're ready to appoint their own leader instead of Moses to go back to Egypt. They're going to turn around and move back to the place of slavery. This is part of, I think, um, the we can't, but also part of our lives, too, is this doubt of the good that God has for us. Deuteronomy, as they recount this story later, it says that the, the people thought that God hated them, and that's why he brought them out into the wilderness. Sometimes when you when you leave behind the comfort of your sin or your safety or your challenges, your, your initial response is, Perhaps God hates me. Now, there was a chance in my life, I didn't think about this before I said that out loud, but um, when I had to sell a trailer that I bought for $600 um, right before I got married and moved to Seattle for seminary, and it was a pain to sell, um, the woman, well, there's too many details for that story. Anyways, I went to a Bible study, and people were talking about it, and I said, you know, I don't have it within me to doubt that God exists. This is not the way I, I sort of function. I don't I don't know why, and so it's hard for me to get riled up about that. But I, I do have it within me to doubt that God likes me. Um, <laughs> that God's on my side. Um, and and now, thinking, connecting that moment up here, in honesty, to the book of Numbers, I realize what the, what the sin is greater than, almost. Because you're doubting the goodness of which God has before you. You're doubting the life that he's going to bring you into. It's not just that, that you um, uh, don't want to do the challenging thing; it's that you think that it's not even going to turn out good on the other side. That's part of this we can't thing. And so the challenge is for them to trust that God's goodness is still there for them. And so they cry all night, and they, they make this plan to go back to them. Um, and and the, the other thing that came up to me uh, thinking about this passage is that the light shine in the darkness, but the people love the darkness instead of the light. I don't know if that ever seems true to you in your life or you see it in the world, but there's this chance that which goodness and light and truth and beauty shine into the world. That there's within us, and within the world, there's this tendency to want to turn away, to not face them. To go back into darkness because you can't believe the goodness is true for that you can't believe it's the news that god has for you that god has restored for you act four If you can tell i spent a lot of time on this one how do you capture god's essence in a drawing don't try too hard <laughs> not at all according to the second commandment so Um, Behold, I've I've, I've tried to not do that, um, (laughs) through failing, ritually. Um, There's this meaning then, what happens after that is Moses and Aaron, they fall on the ground, their faces, they fall on the ground, and they they plead with the people to sort of go forward with this. And what the people then decide to do is, let's stone them. This is how much their rage is filled on going back to what they perceive as safety and goodness. Let's go out and stone them together, and it's that moment that God shows up. And, if that, and there's almost in the in the Hebrew there's there's this is ambiguous that they might have been trying to stone God as well with that as God shows up on the scene, um, and so God shows up in this place, and Moses is the is showed by the individual line up there also very well be done. Um, um, Moses here sort of pleads and intercesses with God again. But God shows up and he asks, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make a nation greater, stronger than they. And similar to the golden calf scene, God, God asks Moses, how about we do this together? How about I make a nation out of you? Because these people don't seem together. And in the same way, and actually this is what Moses calls back out to God, As first he calls out his reputation and character, um, which is this idea that, that God's name is meant to be hallowed throughout the earth. And Moses says, you know, if you do that, people know about this. this is, in some sense, people are watching. You know, if, you, if we act out in that way, if we make this decision, your name is not going to be carried well throughout the earth, no matter what we do as great nations. There's something about fidelity and faithfulness to this people that's demanded of this moment. Then he also calls out what what God revealed to him in Exodus 34, which is up here from Exodus 34, that the the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children, the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses calls God back to the self-revealing that God is like this. This is your character. Now, what's going on here in in God changing God's mind or this, that, and the other? We'll probably talk about it a little bit later. I don't want to get into today, but but Moses calls forth this promise back into God's mind. God says, I forgive them. I have forgiven them as you have asked. What he says, nevertheless, as sure as I live, and the glory fills the earth, not one of those who saw my glory since the signs I performed in Egypt, but who disobeyed me and tested me, not one of them will see the land I promised to their ancestors. This is one of the amazing parts about the Old Testament: is God always has these stiff penalties for breaking certain laws, and then he relents. So if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and well, surely you will die. Well, eventually. Like You don't die right then. Like God always has these penalties, and God is always gracious on the other side of them. And so, even looking at this passage, what does he do to the children? He punishes them for generation and generation and generation. What happens when he punishes this generation in the desert? Just one generation. God's grace flows into this scene as well. God doesn't punish future generations here. He just punishes the one generation, the generation that rebelled in the wilderness, so that their children shall see the land. Now here is where it gets complex, because God's punishment here is also giving them what they wanted. It would have been better if we had died in the wilderness. We will die in the wilderness. Remember, what about the children? Your children will see the land. God will take care of you children. It wasn't for you to try and preserve that yourself. And this is going back into that, that sort of the objective, let's go back to the objective, this is ourselves, is that how often it can be that the punishment is getting what we wanted. Surely it would have been better if I had died in this place. Surely it would have been better if I fall by the sword here. This is too heavy and too hard for me, so I'm giving up. When God's punishment is is giving you what you want, is sort of what happens here. And so the Lord has forgiven them and reiterates that he's slow to anger, and he allows for grace in this punishment, too, and that this new generation will see the land. And then there's this last act, which is the act, I think, of I or one. You can look at that however you want. It's abstract. points. It's not... uh, (laughs) The idea is is that they try to do it by themselves now. There is no partnership. There is nobody else who goes with them. They say, okay, we've sinned. Let's go take this land that's good for us. Let's do it alone. Moses warns them. He says, surely this won't work out well for you to try and fix all this by yourself. Whoa, how many times? Okay, I've made a mistake. Let me repair it all by myself. So they go up and they go and try and take the land by themselves. And, and Chris, you read this part, it, uh, it's probably the same translation I have, but they're like beat, not just back, but beat all the way back home. Um, they're just sort of like suffered over and over and over again through that because they didn't listen to that warning. They tried to escape the punishment which was due to them, but they also tried to take something all on their own. They tried to preserve their own future and their own face in the world. But there's, a, I think there's a lot in the sermon so far, and I think there's a lot we could situate ourselves in. There's, um, I don't really, I don't like application that much, anyways. But there is, um, on the back of the bulletin, there's this quote um, from one of the rabbis sort of commenting on this passage, and it says, They said we looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes. God said, This I can overlook. We look like grasshoppers compared to these people in their own eyes. Matt Shedden looks like a grasshopper compared to LeBron James in his own eyes. But because God is with them, uh, and so we have looked in our own eyes. Here I am, and, or we looked in their eyes, which is what they say. But they look at us like we were grasshoppers. God says, how did you know how I made you look in their eyes? Who told you that you didn't look like angels in their eyes? See, they're claiming to be like God here. We saw how that we they looked at us. What God is saying is: how do you know what you look like in their house? It's one thing to say that the challenges are too great from my perspective, but to say from the challenges' perspective that this is too great, how do you know what you look like to that challenge? For that Goliath to that foreign people, to this land, that barrier that's keeping you from moving into holiness and goodness which God has for you. Who says you don't look like an angel in their eyes, one capable of conquering? And this is where that reading that, that um, uh, Kara read for us during the service comes in. But you, what is God doing in this world, in this passage, through these people? But you, and this is, this is our final point for today, is that what do you look like in their eyes? What do you look like in God's eyes? But you are a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession in the world, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you were in slavery, but now you are the people of God. Once you had received mercy, but now you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is for us to be God's chosen people, God's royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his special possession, so that we can go into the promises of the land and the goodness that he has for us. Let us pray. God, we too Spend forty days looking at the goodness that you have before us, and at times we bring back signs of that. And yet, within us and within the world, we see that that we rebel against that. There's nothing there. The challenges are too great. The people are too great. They're too strong. They're too mighty. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. We we'll raise our voices and weep aloud and make plans to go back to the place you freed us from. But God, too, may you strengthen us. May you call us into the character of Joshua, of Caleb, of Moses, and Aaron in this story, and most of all into your son, Jesus Christ, who lives faithfully in those 40 days in the wilderness that we can see and taste and trust the goodness that you have for us, that we may become living witnesses to that reality, and that we, more than anything, may see what we truly are to you, chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, and your special possession that you have rescued and brought out not to death, but to life in the promised land. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and
1: the Holy Spirit.